Amen. It is a gifted response that we can gather together in his name and praise our God, all bought through the blood of Jesus. And um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20 today. Um, We're continuing our study in the book of Matthew. Today's message is called The Wages of Grace. And we're going to hear a parable from Jesus. And so because of that, I wanted to start with a parable of my own. Uh, So once upon a time, uh, there were three children. Uh, We'll just at random call them Justin, uh, Janelle, and Jeremy. Now, uh, obviously a hypothetical situation I'm about to lay before you. The oldest, Justin, by far the most obedient of the three, By far the most well-behaved of the three, and if his Superman PJs are any indication, the strongest of the three. Now, one morning, he said, Mom, today I would like an ice cream sandwich, and not just any ice cream sandwich. I want the real deal. Like, you actually made the cookies and stuck some some ice cream in between. Can I get an amen from the congregation? That's right. So his mother told him if he did some chores, he would earn himself an ice cream sandwich, reasonable, thought the eldest. And at 6 a.m., he rolls up his sleeves and he goes to work. He starts scrubbing toilets. He starts uh, taking out the trash, taking, uh, cleaning the dishwasher out. Uh, apparently, I don't do that. I don't know how to say it. Uh, and he starts pulling weeds all day outside in the hot Alaskan heat. <laughs> I did. Don't laugh at me. And at the, at the end of it, He just has this vision of this ice cream sandwich that he just can't wait to sink his teeth into. And then about the dinner hour, um, about an hour before dinner, Janelle, the middle child, catches wind of all this. And she says, I want a treat too. So mom says, well, honey, here, just take these clothes that Justin hand washed. And I want you to stick them in your drawer. And then then you'll get a treat as as well. And then Jeremy, uh, the the youngest member of the Frankino clan here, um, contributing nothing to society at this point, uh, he starts seeing what's going on and and hears the conversation. So he starts getting excited. I want ice cream. I want ice cream. And so to to him, my my mom says, okay, buddy, but I I, I need you to, dinner time comes and then the treats get rolled out. She says, I just want you to say thank you and I'll give you one of these treats. So he says in barely audible English, thank you. And and he gets the treat, right? (laughs) Then she turns to Janelle and says, because you put the clothes away, I'm going to give you an ice cream sandwich as well. So now Justin is going, okay, so I'm seeing how this goes. If Janelle, who just put some clothes away, gets an ice cream sandwich, and, and Jeremy, who basically threw some incoherent babble, gets an ice cream sandwich, surely, for the 12 hours that I put in today, that I'm not even sure is legal, <laughs> I must be getting like 20 of these bad boys, right? I think, I, should, I think I've earned an ice cream cake from Dairy Queen. You know what I'm talking about. Mom simply turns to me and says, here you are, honey, the ice cream sandwich that I promised you. What? I slam it on the floor. I stomp on this ice cream cake. And I go, what is this, some Nike sweatshop? Right? Like, what? It's the outrage, the humanity. This isn't fair. Three elements to my parable this morning. The U stands for the usual. Kids doing reward, chores for reward. That, you would see that every day, right? But then there's this unexpected twist where the siblings all get the same amount of reward for very different amounts of work. And this leaves Justin especially with an unsettled feeling. What do we do with such seeming parental injustice? 
Now, today we're going to explore another one of uh, Jesus' parables. And when he tells these parables, we see three aspects, the same three aspects that you saw in mine. First one's the usual, where Jesus always uses everyday scenarios for that current culture and audience. So he talks about sheep and vineyards and mustard seeds and Samaritans and, and fish. Just like we could all relate to kids doing chores, they could all relate to these stories. And usually the story would start out just like you'd expect, a farmer scattering seed. They're not like, wait a second, why would a farmer scatter? It starts out as you would expect it to. But then comes the unexpected twist. Things that would make you go, what? The, the, the shepherd would leave 99 sheep to go track down one? What? Wait a second. The Samaritan is the good guy in the story? What? Wait a second. The father welcomes back the prodigal who had just run, wronged him? What? And this leaves us unsettled, or Jesus, and he twists the story intentionally. He is challenging the reality, the perceived reality of his audience. And in this section of Matthew, we've been seeing in chapters 14 through 20, that Jesus is showing how his kingdom is completely upside down from how the world normally acts. He's confronting our way and comparing it with God's way. And he says, he who, remember our Bible verse, he who has ears, let him hear. So we want to hear the story today. First of all, the usual. Point number one, if you're following along in your sermon notes, workers for hire. Worker for hire. Verse one, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, remember, Jesus, his parables are always comparing. It says like, that's a simile, right? Like or as. So he's comparing something, and it's usually to, and in this case, the kingdom of heaven heaven, which is saying this is the way that God rules, the way that God reigns. This is how things work when Jesus is the king, and it's not like the way that the world works. So he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So I remember one summer uh, when I was 16, uh, back when the fishing was good in Kenai, you remember those days, um, uh, uh, the cannery put an ad on the radio. It said, we need people. The fish are running and we need to process them. Come on down and we'll pay you. I don't care if you've never seen a fish before like, like me somehow, um, but the short amount of time they need to get as many people as possible to work. They need to hire some hands. And this is what's going on in Jesus' day. It's harvest time. And, and at harvest time, people who owned a lot of land, um, uh, people who had... Um, needed a lot of extra help at harvest time, they spread the word. We need people. If you didn't, it would, the harvest went quick, and if you didn't get it harvested, start to spoil. And so there were plenty of poor people who didn't have land, didn't have jobs, who were wake, waiting as early as daybreak to get a job for the day. And in verse 2, we see these workers. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, it's important to note, we'll come back to this, they agreed on the price. They agreed on the price. Note that. And what's the price? A denarius. Now, that was actually a, a very common full day's wage would be one denarius. So that's what they're going to be paid. That's what they uh, agree to. But now, fr from there, um, th this, this day was basically from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. This was their typical work day, 12 hours. They wanted to get as much harvesting done. At the, this was from sunup to sundown. So in Alaska summers, we would have a you know, longer work day, right? So these d work days were divided into four shifts. Um, the first one was at daybreak, 6 a.m., and the next one was at 9 a.m. And if your version might say the third hour, 
That's saying the third hour from sunrise, so it's 9 a.m. And then the next one says the sixth hour is the sixth hour from sunrise, 12 p.m., and you notice patterns, ninth hour, 3 p.m., until 6 p.m. will be the fourth, uh, the fourth shift there. So we see this in verse 3. And going about, uh, out about the third hour, so 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Notice they do not agree on a specific price. In verse 5, so they went, going out again uh, about the sixth hour and the ninth hours, noon and three, he did the same. Now, it must have been a big harvest because he keeps coming back for people. In fact, in verse 6, about the eleventh hour, he went and out and found others standing. The literal eleventh hour, which would be what time? 5 p.m. There's one hour of work left, but he still needs more workers. Now, notice what he looks at here. He says, he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? He looks at these people who have not been hired all day. What are you still doing here? And they said, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, I like to imagine here, um, what kind of quality of worker would you expect to still be standing around at 5 p.m.? Like, like if, I'm, if I'm doing the manual labor, if I'm hiring the labor, and I come in at 6 a.m., I'm looking around and I'm going, hmm, Hercules, you come with me. All right, Popeye, let's go. I, I pick the strongest, right? I pick the, the cream of the crop. So my, my imagination says that at 5 p.m., this gets pretty picked over. Who's left? This dude, right? The guy that can't even bench press the bar, let alone any weights. He might not have any arms at all. At this point, the guy's just going, warm bodies, let's, let's hit the road. Now, so far, so good, right? This would be usual, that a farmer is, is hiring workers for his harvest. Normal story. But then here come the twists, the twists. We see the unexpected. There is backward and equal payment. Backward and equal payment, starting in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Whoa. If these, if, if, think about this. this, this is not probably how you would do it, right? If people have worked 12 hours, some have worked nine, some six, some three, and some only one, and they all line up to get their payment. And remember, these are poor people who need to feed their families tonight. That's why they paid them at the end of each day. Here you have the 12-hour gang, pit stains, hunched over, exhausted. Then you have the 5 p.m. crew who, you know, picked like three grapes, they don't even have purple on their fingers yet. Who do you think should be paid first? But it's the exact opposite. He starts with the 5 p.m. and works backward toward those who had worked 12 hours. This is the first twist in our story. That is the last hires who are paid first. The last hires at 5 p.m. are the ones who are paid first. Let's look at twist number two. Nine, verse 9, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now remember, the denarius was for what? A full day's wage. So this is like if I was at the cannery and I show up, my first day is the last day of the pay period, and I get two weeks worth of a paycheck? Jackpot! I don't deserve that. I only worked for one day, not two weeks. So you would expect them to what? You'd expect that he like cut a denarius in twelfths and gave them a sliver. Right? But that's not what happens here. The second twist is that the 5 p.m.ers get paid as though they had worked a full day, which they had not. And here's the last twist, verse 10. Now, when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. 
So the first day, first, uh, first shift crew is like, sweet. If they got 12 times more than we did, imagine what we're going to get, right? We should be getting 12 denarii. That's plural for denarius. 12 denarii to be fairy. But I wonder if they watch that 3 p.m., 12 p.m., 9 a.m. crew, they each get one denarius too, presumably, and they're going, I don't like this pattern. And what we see is that the third twist is that everybody who came that day, regardless of how long they worked, get paid the same. How would you react? How do you think they reacted? Oh, thank you, sir. We were just happy to be here. The unsettled. Look at the unsettled. We see a complaining and a comparing spirit. A complaining and a comparing spirit. Verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Now, it was rare for a a, a common hired hand to talk to the master at all, let alone to have the chutzpah to argue about how much they got paid by that master. But this is exactly what they did. And what's their real beef here? The real beef isn't how much they got paid. Remember, verse 2, they agreed on the amount. Look at what their complaint is. They said, these last, this 5 p.m. bunch, they worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. So dramatic, right? So the problem they had was that you made them equal to us. Just like Justin in our story, who was, felt like he was burdened all day pulling weeds in the scorching heat. And he said, same, the same prize, the same ice cream sandwich as my brother who did nothing, and my sister who basically did nothing. They go, we got, we got the same amount as the 5 p.m. It's not fair, right? It's not fair. To which the master replies, friend, he singles one of them out, interesting. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Because we talked about this, right? What crime have I committed? I paid you the wage we agreed upon. So, so was my mom wrong in giving me one ice cream sandwich? Apparently I thought so. But, but of course not, right? And as a generous mother, if she wants to give Janelle one for much less work and Jeremy essentially for free 99, that's her God-given parental right. Am I right? Yeah, thanks, Mom. <laughs> We're, And I'm over it. I'm so over it. Just a few therapy sessions and I moved on. Verse 14, take what belongs to you and go, the master says. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you, and this is a haunting phrase, do you begrudge my generosity? This word here, begrudge, it literally means the evil eye. It says you're giving those 5 p.m.ers the stink eye. That's my stink eye. You're jealous, right? You are looking, you, your eye is bad because I have been good, because I have been generous. And then he says, he gives them the moral of the story. So, verse 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. There's your moral. Huh? We are left unsettled here. Because guess what? This is terrible business practice. That you would pay people, regardless of how long they worked, how well they worked, like what their degree was in. That's how they should be paid, right? That's fair. Is this how God, he just said this is how God's kingdom is? You gotta explain yourself here, Jesus. Well, in order to understand the point of the parable, we need to understand the context of the 
parable. So if you were here last week, we were back in Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at the context. We read this story of the rich young ruler, right? We said Richie Rich, the guy that was come to Jesus on a quest for eternal life. And he was a moral, moral guy, right? He had kept the law since he was a baby. I've been working six, 6 a.m., but Jesus exposes the man's idolatrous heart. He was trusting in his money and his possessions more than Jesus. And so he walks away sad when Jesus says, choose me or choose your possessions. He abandons Jesus, choosing his functional God. But then, and we skipped this part last week, we see Peter, if you can believe it, once again, just blurt something out before thinking. Verse 27, Peter said in reply, as the man's walking away, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Do you hear the tone in Peter's voice here? He's like a kid who sees his sibling get in trouble and like, was like, looks at the mom and goes, but I did what you said, didn't I, mom? I'm much better than them. Yes, honey, but I don't like your attitude. <laughs> you can keep it up, you're going to be in trouble too. Peter says, Jesus, we gave up everything, didn't we? Unlike Richie Rich, who won't give it up, we gave it up and we followed you, which, which is true, right? They dropped their nets and from the beginning followed Jesus. And then in verse 21, like Jesus had just said, he said, you say we'll have treasure in heaven. If we leave it all and follow you, we'll receive more treasure than anything we've given up. Now, I think this is a fair and honest question and a point that Peter's making, but I also think Jesus is going to say to him, yes, but I don't like your attitude. Verse 28, he said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. He says, yes, Peter, you're right. You will rule and you will reign with me forever. You will receive more back than you've ever given up. But then in verse 30, he says, but, but, not and, not so, not therefore, a but. It's a warning tone in the way that Jesus finishes his response to Peter. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I think Jesus is telling Peter, I don't want you to set your sight on what you think you're going to get I certainly don't want you to do it by comparing yourself with the rich young ruler over here. In my kingdom, it's not just a matter of punching the clock and then earning the exact corresponding amount that you've worked for, expecting and earning. If that's your attitude, remember Jesus always gets at the heart. He says, if this is your heart's attitude, then your full day's work may look great, but to me, it's very small. The world may be impressed. The world may regard you as first. I will regard you as last. And then he gives in this parable to prove the point. And we see this even just literarily, right? At the end of this, as he goes into the parable about the vineyard, the last thing he says to Peter is, but many who are first, Peter, will be last. And then he flips it, and at the end of the parable, he says, so the last will be first, and the first last. Jesus is saying to the 6 a.m. crew that, that, that was first hired, they were least paid and, and least honored. Why? Listen, not because they were hired first, but because they worked with the wrong spirit. They had the wrong attitude. And this parable is spoken directly to the disciples. 
Peter in general. And then what comes, the very next story is James and John trying to push their way to the front of the line to sit at Jesus' right hand and their helicopter mom is in on it with them, right? And in fact, we see that this is often the, the attitude of the Jews, they say, we've followed you since the beginning, Jesus, way back when, when it was Abraham's covenant. We've been your chosen people with these promises. And now you're just letting the Gentiles in and offering them the same grace, the same denarius that we've received? That's not fair. And it's a gentle warning to say, yes, you were the first to drop your nets. Yes, you've been working since 6 a.m. Yes, you are my covenant people. But if you follow me with the wrong attitude, the wrong spirit, the wrong motivation, the first will be last in my kingdom. Now, what kind of a spirit is he calling out here? And what kind of a spirit ought we have? Well, I believe the point of the parable coming out of this context that we just talked about is this. I would say it this way. Our worth and joy in God's kingdom does not come from earning the wages of a contract, but from freely receiving the extravagant generosity of his grace. Our worth and joy in God's kingdom does not come from earning the wages of a contract, but from freely receiving the extravagant generosity of his grace. And I get that from the story today, so I want to explain. I um, uh, Last Monday, we hiked Juno Falls uh, with the, the family, my dad's birthday, and uh, we found a pair of sunglasses on the trail. So, of course, I picked them up and put them on my, my face. And it changed the way I saw the trail, right? I looked cooler because I had aviators on. But then I also could see the trail differently, right? It was shady. In fact, it was really cloudy, so I couldn't see it very well, and I put them on top of my head. But beside the point, there are two lenses through which we can see the world, and it colors the way we see everything. We can see it through the lens of pride or through the lens of humility. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at in this story. So let's look at the first lens. The first lens is pride. Now, I think that pride, the lens of pride, sees reality as a ladder. The kingdom is a ladder where the higher you climb, the more important you are. I'm the king of the ladder, right? And, And four things here. A, pride wants to earn God's favor. It wants to earn God's reward. It wants to earn God's place in his kingdom. So why would we want to earn something? If we're told that we're freely given, why would we want to earn something that we're freely given? Well, because if we earn it, who gets the glory? Look at me. What I earn. So pride climbs the ladder under the illusion that can earn, out-earn God's favor and, and climb its way out of sin and get the glory. So because of that, B, pride wants to elevate oneself, which stands to reason, right? We want to elevate. If you think that you have to climb the ladder in order to earn, then I need to climb the ladder. I need to elevate myself, which inevitably leads us to point C, that pride compares itself with others. It compares itself with others. Hear the proud hearts of the 6 a.m. crew, verse 12. You made them equal to us. You would make them equal to us. Their complaint, again, was not on the wage that they had agreed upon. Their complaint was that these chumps who worked a twelfth as long as we did are going to receive the same amount? And they're scandalized. See, pride that elevates through earning starts to compare. And this is an inevitable aspect of pride. See, it's not just like a certain altitude. I don't need to just get to, you know, rung 493. I just need to be higher than you. I see this pride in my own heart as a pastor. Like I, want, I want a good church. I want to be part of a good thing. But in my pride, I say, it doesn't just need to be like this, like a certain amount of people. I got to get to 400 people and we're good. It's just, I just need to have a bigger and better church than, than, than you. 
It compares. In fact, this is the comparison trap that we find ourselves in when we look through this lens. It leaves us with seeing people in two different ways. I'm higher than you or I'm lower than you. It's somewhere along the spectrum of the ladder. And so if I think I'm better than you, I'm going to look down on you in judgment. I'm going to find reasons to say, not necessarily that you're bad, but just that you're worse than me. Or sometimes, and we can do this, this is a little bit more subtle, but we do it the other way. We look up at people in jealousy, and, and jealousy or insecurity is just the other side of the, of the pride coin. There's arrogance and there's insecurity. And, and the jealousy says, I, I think you're higher than me. I think you're better than me. We, we want to be unique. Some of us, is that we arrogantly think we're better than other people, and, and some people think we're just uniquely bad. I went to the doctor, never saw anything like that before. You know how messed up I am? You know, we, we want to stand out. We want to be unique in, in whatever way that it is. So we compare. We, we get caught in the comparison trap. And then D, this is where it inevitably leads us. Pride complains at God. It complains at God. When we compare, it inevitably leaves us in this complaining spirit. This is what they did, right? On receiving this denarius, they grumbled at the master of the house. Why? Because if I believe that I have to elevate myself in order to earn God's favor, I inevitably, as I compare myself with other people on that ladder, I'm going to see what I determine to be injustice when someone else gets something that I don't think they earned, certainly didn't earn it more than I did. And so we scream out, it's not fair. So the 6 a.m. worker said, it's not fair that the 5 p.m. worker got this paid the same amount as me. It's not fair, says hypothetical Justin. It's not fair that I did way more than them and we get the same ice cream sandwich. You remember the story of the prodigal son? This is a modern version. He'll probably get the top bunk, too. He's not happy about this. What happens in the story of the prodigal son? The older brother who faithfully stood by the father's side, who never abandoned him, he sees that when the prodigal comes running home, having totally thrown away his father's inheritance early, slopping around with the pigs, but when he gets back, he's the one that gets the barbecue and the balloons. He says, that's not fair. God, it's not fair. I've followed you. I've been obedient to you. I've done my best to obey, be a good person. So why is this heathen over here getting a better life than me? Why am I the one with the hard-hearted spouse? Why am I the one struggling with infertility? Why am I the one with a child with special needs? Why am I the one who's still single? Why am I the one with the financial problems? Why am I the one that can't find the right job? God has given them so much more than me. It's not fair. I don't deserve this. The latter lens of pride sees God's blessing. It sees it like a contract that we negotiate with him over, that we bargain with God to earn our wages from him, and then we throw a little tantrum and we begrudge his generosity toward others when we don't think they deserve it, or at least don't deserve better than we have. This lens of pride, uh, this latter approach, it doesn't see myself correctly, it doesn't see Jesus correctly, it certainly doesn't see his kingdom correctly. He says, pride in my kingdom is not first, it's actually last. So what lens shall we see through? The lens of humility. The lens of humility. This, this lens does not see us climbing a ladder. It sees us all in an infinite pit that we have dug ourselves without any means of escaping, without any means of accessing the kingdom above. Now, the, now humility, A, it knows that it cannot earn God's favor. It can't earn his reward. It can't earn a place in his kingdom. As much as we want to be the 6 a.m. worker, 
As, as much as we want to see that we've earned God's favor, humility shows us how we, who we really are. We're the, the wimp with, with the weak arms, the, the muscles that go this way, right? Or maybe we don't have arms at all because we can't earn any favor from our God. We all fall short and we are stuck in the pit. Now, humility sees this correctly. It sees that none of us can get ourselves out of the pit. And our only hope was that God would send his son into the pit with us so that he would free us and fly us out of there. That, that humility sees, I can't earn God's favor with my own sinful hands. I'm Jeremy, the little babbler who can barely get out. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me that I could have never earned. Remember, the unsettling part was not that the 6 a.m. crew was underpaid, but it was that the 5 p.m. crew was scandalously overpaid. And this is the abundant generous nature of scandalous grace that we're shown by our God. He would pay the greatest price for me. And the reward is not an ice cream sandwich or a denarius. It's that he would give his only son to make a 5 p.m. wretch his treasure. That's not fair. B, humility does not even think of oneself. It doesn't try to elevate itself. It doesn't even have its eyes on itself. I love what C.S. Lewis says. Humility doesn't think less of oneself, but thinks of one's self less. Do you see the difference? To think less of yourself is to go, I'm a terrible person. And what do we say? That's still pride. It's just the insecurity side. It's just the everybody's better than me side. It's still my eyes on myself. Humility says, my eyes aren't even on me. My eyes are so enamored with the king who has lavished this grace on me. I don't even have to worry about myself. All my needs have been met. And I certainly don't have to put myself on other people to compare. And he appreciates the rewards that we're going to be given for following him. Because right, we will receive reward in heaven. But for the one with his eyes on the king, that's just icing on the cake. That is more, there are more gifts that we can use to glorify the giver because he's the only one that can satisfy me. And so C, this leads us to humility doesn't compare like pride does. It considers others better. It considers others better. I get this from Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Don't try to climb that ladder. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. We don't see each other on a ladder trying to compete. We see each other in that pit, all in an even playing field, all in complete need of Jesus. And it isn't, therefore, jealous or judgmental because we're not comparing. But as Paul says in Romans 12, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. When we understand that we've been rescued out of the pit, completely unearned, we're going to throw that balloon and barbecue party when we see another sinner get rescued. And when we someone see someone struggling or someone still in the pit, our heart breaks for them like our king's does. And it recognizes, humility recognizes that fair doesn't mean equal, right? We've been told that since we were little. That God meets each person where they're at with his grace sufficient for the different seasons, the different lives that they live. And this leads us not to complaining at God, but in rejoicing to God. Humility rejoices to God. And once again, C.S. Lewis says it so well, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison robs us of our joy. Because if I'm spending my whole, oh, sorry. If I spend my whole time comparing myself with other people, that's not going to be a joyful existence, right? It's misery. It's misery. But humility realizes that I'm elevated in Christ. 
See, here's the irony. When he says, when we try to exalt ourselves and climb up that ladder, that's actually what brings us low. Those kind of people will be brought low. God is opposed to the proud, but he exalts the humble. When we come before him recognizing we have nothing that we can earn to receive God's favor on our own merit, it's only there with empty hands, like we talked last week, that we receive his blessing, and he elevates us with Christ. And that seat that James and John were after at his right hand, he says, we're already seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ humble are exalted, and the proud are brought low. See, the lens of humility sees that this is not a contract negotiation with our God. This is a covenant. It's a covenant where he promises us more than we could ever earn. And he keeps his promises, not because we've earned it, not because of how awesome we are, because his promises are based on the fact that he's a generous God. He's a God of abundant blessing. He's a God who is faithful and who just loves to bless people. And you know what he says? He says, the last will be first. And I think he's talking about joy here. Those who are are trying to ascend the ladder and put themselves first are actually the ones that are going to receive the least amount of joy in the kingdom. And those who recognize their place before their God and everything they have is unearned in Christ, those are going to be the ones the lonely and the losers running wildly to his side. And it's the proud and the religious with their mouths open wide. It's a beautiful lyric of a song that I know. See, whether a disciple f- who followed him since day one, they've been in the 6 a.m. all day long work in the heat, or it's the thief on the cross who obviously did nothing. He didn't have time to. Couldn't even get baptized. That's another sermon. Whether it's the deathbed conversion or the Christian who's been there lifelong, guess what? Both of them have received scandalous grace that they don't deserve. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. Let's pray to him. Father, come before you this morning. We recognize, man, we we can't earn anything. The only thing we've earned is separation from you. So often in our pride... We get caught up in trying to elevate ourselves through earning. And so we compare ourselves with other people. And we find ourselves complaining at you. Father, by your grace, would you humble us? Maybe there's someone here today who's been very proud that that needs to hear this word so they would humble themselves at the cross, let go of whatever they've been holding on to of their own merit, and freely receive in Jesus what is given to them and find, find that joy. And maybe there's somebody today who feels very low. They need to know that you love them scandalously. And that in Christ they are elevated. That you, you sit them right there at your right hand and say, I love you. I cherish you. I've given you everything because I am loved. Because you're my image-bearing creation. And because of what Jesus has done for you. May we be a people who do not compare with one another, but all have averted eyes away from ourselves and onto Jesus. And out of that, we would extend the same kind of grace to one another that we've received from him. It's in the name of the scandalous grace shown to us in Christ that we pray. Amen.